morning, church. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord? Yes, certainly. I look forward to food fair. It's been a long time since we had it. Someone is asking me if I bring a big bowl, right? Do I get more misyam? I don't think so. But let's do our part to, you know, steward God's creation well. So if the Lord leads you, bring along your bowl, you know, your utensils so that we can help to kind of like steward creation and really save resources. You know, it's really exciting as we go through the first Corinthian sermon series. This is really a book about real issues. This is a book that speaks about the real issues that we face as a real church. So let's join our hearts in prayer. We really need the Holy Spirit to make God's Word real and alive to each one of us today. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? Would you grant us grace to not just hear from you, but grace to obey. Grace to follow wherever you lead. Grace to apply your Word. For that delights you, O God. We want to be a people that will delight you. So give us grace, O Lord. Purify my lips and our hearts as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How's our journey through First Corinthians so far? Paul starts the book by addressing the issue of unity in the church. He urges the church, hey guys, stop quarreling with one another. I know some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, you know, I follow each, this leader. But stop quarreling with one another just because you follow different leaders. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, is the source of all unity. And he urges humility. He urges us to consider that God uses the foolish to confound the wise. God uses the weak to shame the strong. Then in chapter 2, he builds on this idea of what true wisdom is. It is wisdom from the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand spiritual truth. Pastor Ben covered that last week. And now in chapter 3, Paul goes back to the issue of division. He says, hey guys, don't let leaders divide the church. Different leaders may sow and plant, but it is God who brings the harvest. And then in chapter 4, he reiterates the sacrifice, the cost of ministry as servants of God. And then now Paul moves on to a fresh issue, a pressing issue. That's what we're, we're going to look at today in chapter 5. The issue of church discipline, which will allow me to read God's word for us. Entire chapter, 13 verses, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship? Your man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Now in that case, you would have to leave this world. 
But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God would judge those outside. But expel the wicked person from among you. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's the issue. Paul receives a report that there is sexual immorality present in the church. A man was in an incestuous, ongoing relationship with his stepmother, the wife of his father. And that's not the only problem. The real problem, if I may say, is that the Corinthians are proud of it. Now you must understand that Corinth was a sex city. There were temple prostitutes, there was sensuality, there was rampant. So every Corinthian Christian would have to face the pressure and the influence of sexual immorality of the society then. And so Paul was outraged. He was outraged that the church in Corinth, they were actually proud of their ability to tolerate or even embrace such sexual immorality amongst them. They are proud that they are broad-minded about such things. And for Paul, it's deeply concerning that the church is not concerned at all. They are blasé, very arrogant attitude. Tolerating this sin deeply disturbs him. Maybe this man who was committing incest, he was an influential member of the church. Therefore, the church did not dare to do anything. We do not know. But Paul steps in and calls for discipline. This sermon, I'm going to cover why is discipline needed. When is it called for? How it is administered? What are some of the challenges we face today as a church where discipline is concerned? First question, why is discipline needed? Number one is to deal with the sin of the individual. Paul says in verse 5, hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed. Now some of you may be thinking, is this some black magic ceremony that you watch in K-dramas and movies? Like casting a curse on a man No, my friends, to hand this man over to Satan is another way of saying, put this man out of your fellowship. Expel this wicked person among you. But why to Satan? Now, you must understand that Paul was in fact referring to what we call an Old Testament understanding of sacred space, where sin is removed from the place where God resides. So imagine with me, and you know this, sin is removed from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. They were expelled. Sin was removed from the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God resides. And now amongst the church, the people of God, Paul is saying, expel this wicked person, hand him over to Satan, a place where Satan still has dominion, which is the world. Now you may say, isn't this very harsh? And here's the point. Casting him out is a radical move, yes. But the purpose to exclude him from fellowship is so that his flesh his sinful nature may be destroyed as he comes to repentance and returns to God. So it is a very radical move, but it's a necessary move to cast the person out so that the person may recognize, oh, I'm out of the community, I'm out of fellowship, I need to turn back to God. It's a hope that they come to repentance. It's not a guarantee, by the way. You can only hope for it. But that's the first thing. Why is discipline needed? To deal with the sin of the individual. Discipline is also needed to deal with an arrogant church. 
Here Paul makes a reference to the Old Testament. The very defining event of the Passover. Those of you who know in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord passed over the doors of the Israelite homes right in Egypt. And whenever there's blood smeared, blood of the lamb sacrificed, smeared on the door, the, the Lord will pass over. But without blood, the angel of death would strike. And many homes of the Egyptians had their firstborn killed. Now on the night of the Passover, Israel ate what we call unleavened bread. Now today in Singapore, we love our bread with yeast. Because it's fluffy, it's soft, it rises. But unleavened bread is flat bread without yeast. And the idea here is that yeast is like sin. Because yeast was spread through the dough and causes it to rise. Sin, similarly, if you do not check it, if you tolerate it, it's like yeast that was spread and infect your entire body. And so God was teaching His people, the ancient people of the Israelites, that they are to be distinct from the world. As bread is to be without yeast, they are to be free from anything that might spread and infect them as the people of God. And so Paul was in fact telling the church in Corinth, if I may paraphrase verse 7, he tells them, you are Passover people. You are called to be pure, undefiled, unleavened and holy, just as Christ, who is pure and without blemish, was sacrificed for you. Paul was telling the church in Corinth, hey guys, if you accept and tolerate the blatant sin of this man, and if you are even proud of the ability to accept it, guess what? Over time, like yeast, it's more. It will infect the entire church. Well, some of us may not really identify with bread without yeast, but some of us eat cheese, right? And you know a little mold in cheese? Guess what it does? It will spread to the entire loaf of cheese. And in time to come, the cheese is completely inedible. And so my friends, today... Are we so arrogant so as to tolerate sin and let it infect the church? That's the point. Do we turn a blind eye to blatant sin? But by doing so, we are actually infecting not just ourselves, but the entire community of God. You know, I was thinking, are we truly Passover people? Do we keep ourselves pure for the Passover of God's judgment or do we pass over impurity and find ourselves in God's judgment? What do we do? What would you do? And that brings me to my second question. When is discipline called for? For us, what's immoral needs to be disciplined. And straight away, a lot of us, immorality is sexual immorality. But from verse 10 to 11, Paul makes it clear that it's a range of conduct that calls for discipline. He says, is the sexually immoral or the greedy and an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler? And so apart from sexual morality, misconduct like financial fraud, or even abusive behavior like blatant alcoholism, rebellion against authority, misrepresentation, defamation, character assassination. Now these is a range of conduct. If they are blatantly carried out, they call for church discipline. They're not trivial, my friends. But apart from the type, Paul also mentions the nature of the conduct. Paul says, expel the wicked among you. So what he's referring to, he's referring to the kind of intentional, habitual, systematic, persistent, and unrepentant sinful conduct. 
You must distinguish a person who may have fallen and is willing to, to, you know, we sung a song, Jesus paid it all, come back to the grace and the mercies of God. We must distinguish that from someone who is just blatantly unrepentant and continue to pursue in habitual systematic sin. There's a difference. Paul says, for such nature of conduct, we are called to discipline. Paul also says, that impact of the conduct is necessary for us to consider because the greater the impact, the more necessary the discipline. We see that in sinful conduct like slander. Slander has deep impact. We can also see that in the compromise of leaders because when leaders fall, the greater the need for firm discipline. In fact, a longer period of discipline for full restoration. My friends, in the past years, you have known a number of prominent church leaders, theologians, pastors who have fallen from grace and how they have gone through discipline in order that they may no longer stumble the church or stumble the world, but they may be brought back to the Lord. And finally, my friends, who are the persons involved in the conduct? We are to judge those within Paul makes it very clear in verse 12 that our judging is not of those outside the church. They are God's responsibility. But we are to judge those within. What does that mean? That means those who claim or call themselves Christian, like a brother or sister in Christ, but yet they are still persistent and unrepentant in their conduct. That's the kind of people we are called to come by and gently discipline. Now by this time you're wondering, oh wow, this... This doesn't really apply to me. Or maybe you're thinking, there are some people amongst us that requires that discipline. So how is that discipline administered? And here's the crux, the process for discipline. Paul says, expel the wicked. What does that mean? Hand them over to Satan. In the context of Paul's time, he was referring to excommunication. In his time, that will mean being excluded from the fellowship of the church in meals and holy communion. Because in the days of Paul, the church gathered in small groups. And every time they gathered, they would have a meal together and then they would celebrate holy communion together. And so by excommunication, Paul is saying, don't have that person join your fellowship. But how do we apply that in a contemporary church today? Today, let me ask you a question. Do we actually excommunicate? Now, my friends... We've got to go back to the effectiveness of the measure. Is excommunication actually effective in the modern church today? Because if you turn someone away, guess what? The person goes down to the next church down the street. The person would join another church online. So you must understand that in Paul's time, there was only one church. The church that met in the small group. Today, we have so many options. The excommunication may not be the most effective way to discipline. And here's the point. Matthew 18, 15 to 18 actually provides us a process by which we can discipline. Let me share that with you for your thoughtful consideration. Matthew 18 says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, Take one or two others so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. Now, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. And so in my view, I think a process for discipline can look like this. It starts with private conversation. 
It starts with you having that one-on-one conversation with a brother or sister whom you notice maybe in sin. Have that honest conversation. If the person refuses to repent and get it moves on to what we call a group discussion, where you involve two or three others as witnesses. If the person still refuses to repent, then you will bring it to the church leaders. And guess what the church leaders would do? We will then confront, we will examine the matter, we will look into the details. And if the person still refuses to repent, then that's where you exact discipline. What does that mean? Number one, discipline can mean a remover from leadership or volunteering position. Because that's important. As leaders, even as volunteers, we are front-facing. And the truth is that we can stumble the church and stumble the world if we are not removed from that position of line light. And the truth is, in our time here as a church, we have asked persons to step down if they have been found to be committing in persistent and blatant sin. Number two, and I think it's more drastic, is that we exclude from a small group meeting. Now, this one requires much prayerful consideration. But there may be a place where the toxicity of that person and what he's doing may require us to gently step in. Can, you, can we invite you to leave the small group for a season? But this does not extend to refusing entry to a public meeting like a service because the service is open to all. Believer or non-believer, it's open to all to come. We believe that the service is a place where the means of God's grace can come to help a person repent and transform. Of course, unless the person disrupts the order of the service. And finally, my friends, removal of membership. In Methodist Church, we have a process under the Book of Discipline to remove a member. And it involves a tedious process of investigation, charging the person, so going through the full process to remove a person as a member. But despite all these measures, there's one thing I want to remind all of us. The purpose of discipline is never to punish. The purpose of discipline is always for restoration. Amen? And that is the heart of the matter. And despite the various measures I've highlighted, members should continue to lovingly journey with the person being disciplined if the person is willing. If the person is willing, we don't let the person go. We continue to journey. We continue to support in prayer. We continue to urge. We even continue to rebuke that a person may one day come back to the Lord. Now here, I want to be very honest with you. There's some challenges with discipline today in our very contemporary society. I mean, we look at chapter 5 and we say, hey, this chapter doesn't really apply to us. But there are many lessons for us from chapter 5. But there are too many challenges for us today. What are the challenges for discipline? Number one, there's too much emphasis on individual responsibility in our world today. The person is accountable to God, right? And so why, who am I to step in, right? Let the person, you know, be, be judged by God. Who am I to step in? So this idea of individualism, this idea of individual society has plagued the church. And it has plagued us today. We no longer are concerned for our brothers and sisters to help them walk in holiness because we say that's your individual walk. But no, that's not a biblical picture, my friends. As a community of faith, we help one another. Our faith is personal, but it's never private. Our faith is personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be shared in community, helping one another grow in holiness. Number two, the second challenge is too much fear of being a busybody. Don't get bola. 
You see somebody, hey, wow, I know that person, maybe even my small group member, wow, he's, he's behaving strangely with this woman who is not his wife. I don't keep it, let the wife handle it. You know? Yesterday I was speaking at TSS Saturday service and I, sp- I spoke to this, uh, uh, the ladies from Hong Kong and they're using Cantonese, uh, those of you who understand Cantonese, Pakwa, right? It's Pakwa, it's like, don't, don't be a busybody. That's the culture that we have today. Don't, 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 don't be a busybody. Number three, too unkind to judge anybody. Who am I to judge, right? Who am I to judge? As a church, we should always love, embrace. We cannot condemn. No, my friends, there is a place for us to judge with love. Fourthly, and this breaks my heart, we're too large a church for real accountability. Too large a church for real accountability. In the early church, in Paul's time, if you are committing blatant sin, the entire small group knows and they will help you walk right with God. Today, you can slip in and slip out and nobody really knows how you are. You can also be in a small group and nobody really knows how you are in your faith journey. But are we really too large for real accountability? But we can be small. We have discipleship bands. We have people who are willing to journey with one another if you are willing to take that next step. And lastly, and this is my greatest fear, is that we are too shallow in our relationships for timely discovery. This breaks my heart because time and time again, we discover blatancy too late. Where the person is so steeped in sin that it's just impossible to get that person out of it. Because we discover it too late. Because even though we are, have all the structures, like small groups and so on and so forth, our relationships are really quite shallow. We'd rather spend more time getting more information from the Word of God, mining the Word of God, than rather really doing life by sharing deep. We fear that by opening up ourselves that we will be judged. And here's where we need to be countercultural. Here's where we need to ask ourselves, don't just do church and be church just for the sake of it. What's the point? There's a place for us to lovingly journey one another. And with this, I want to share three discipleship lessons. The first discipleship lessons is that discipleship, discipline is painful, but it's absolutely necessary. It's painful, yes, I know. Because it's about repentance for the one who has turned away, and it is to turn us away from indifference and laxity. You know, when you put yourself in a place to want to come and lovingly discipline someone, you can no longer turn your eyes away. And that's good for your soul. That's actually good for your soul. Because the tolerance of sin is a form of arrogance that's actually idolatry. Because if God does not tolerate sin, right, who are we to? If we are to grow in the likeness of Christ, remember Jesus doesn't tolerate sin. He tells the woman, I do not judge you, but go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven, but do not sin anymore. Jesus stands firm. And who are we to turn our eyes away as if nothing has happened? In fact, our discipleship requires us to help one another walk right with God. My friends, we must avoid a cheap grace. A kind of cheap kind of grace it takes what our Lord has done on the cross for granted when we refuse to help each other keep the right path with the Lord. So yes, discipline is painful, but discipline is necessary 
for us as a church. Why? Because discipline is owned by everyone for the maturing of community. How many of you, when you were young, you were outstanding students? Anyone dares to admit? Outstanding students? By then, I mean you are standing outside. <laughs> outstanding. Thanks, Pastor Clem. Outstanding because you called the pool your year and then stand outside the class. So you're an outstanding student. I, I guess some of you will then raise your hands. I was an outstanding student. See that we understand discipline like that. Outstanding. Pull your ear. Because it's punishment. No, my friends. The biblical understanding of discipline is never to punish. It's always to train for maturity. Hebrews chapter 12. Read the passage. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The original Greek word for discipline is child training. And those of us as parents, we know. Constantly we have to train our children so that they may grow up right and mature. And we may be very old in age, but we may be very young in our faith. We may be very mature in certain areas of our faith, but yet we are still very immature in some other aspects. We may have many years in church ministry as a leader, or very steeped and well-versed in Bible knowledge, but yet still immature in some of the emotional expressions. And we all need one another to discipline, to help train one another. Amen? And here's the point. A lot of us think that discipline is owned by the pastor. It's owned by the small group leaders. All the small group leaders are very stressed because everything goes to them. They are the apex of discipline. And the small group leader cannot handle, go to the zone leader. Zone leader cannot handle, go to the small group pastor and come to PIC. Kind of stops there. For a while. And we think that it's, it's you. You got to do it. No, my friends, all of us. If you forget anything I've said, Catch this heart of my heart for this chapter 5. Because when Paul writes, he doesn't write just to the leaders. He writes to the entire church. That together, you have to lovingly restore this brother. Yes, you may have to put him out for a while. But you lovingly restore him back. So today, you are in small groups, you are in communities. You see someone who is not exactly behaving right and you, you are in a position. What do you do? Do you turn away? No. Ask the Lord, Lord, fill me with your love. Help me reach out to care. And then you see your community explode in maturity. Because I, I dare tell you, the world is waiting to see such a community. Because the world will say, you Christians call yourself a place where you forgive one another, you receive the forgiveness, but you don't seem to take sin very seriously. You seem to cover up. We stumble the church, my friends. But when we, when we gather together and have this kind of transparent relationship, it makes our community distinctive. I can tell you it's going to be a light to the world. You know, this sermon has caused me to think about a, a conversation I need to have with your brother. And when I go to him, I do not go as PIC. I go as Raymond. He's my brother. It's going to be a difficult conversation but it's a necessary one. And so as I go through that, what I'm going to say to him, I pray, God, you fill me with your love. Bathe me in your love. Let me not judge, but let me come to a place where I love any journey with someone. That brings me to my last discipleship lesson. Discipline is imposed with love, with love for restoration and healing. Paul, Paul says in verse 8, he tells the people, the church, you are to celebrate the festival on the unleavened bread with sincerity and love. Sincerity and truth. So yes, there has to be truth. 
but there has to be love. And we call to speak the truth always in love. Discipline is never about punishment. It's about restoration. And it's this atmosphere of openness and sincerity and truthfulness that our sin and our failure can be properly dealt with. Not with judgmentalism, but openly, courageously, with consistency. As I close, I want to paraphrase a quote by William Barclay. He says, Discipline is never to satisfy the one who imposes it. Discipline is to heal and restore the person who goes through it so that the church is stronger at the end of it. So that the church is stronger at the end of it. Do you want to see your small groups and communities grow in strength? Do you want to see us maturing in our love for each other? Let's not turn away from discipline. There is a place for it. To do so in love. Let's own discipline together as the people of God. Amen. And I pray the Lord would just touch your heart today. Really, we are not in, not in a position to judge. I understand that. And we're not judging. But we're coming along to say, I'm as much a sinner as you. But in this season, my dear brother, my dear sister, I see you slipping. I see you falling. I'm no better than you. But let me come alongside to love you and to journey with you. Will you do that, my friends? Will you help someone who needs that loving discipline from you? Join me in prayer. Come, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Speak your living word right now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus, come and speak to each one of us your living word. What are you calling us to do? Maybe it is to pray for someone. Maybe it is to have the courage to have that crucial conversation. Maybe for some of us here, we are the ones who need that discipline. Not that the Lord disciplines you out of His love. Not that the Lord cares for you enough to come to you and put you through a season of discipline that your heart may be restored to Him. Oh Lord, give us grace to respond as you speak your word to each one of us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. As the people of God, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, have us seek your face, turn from our wicked ways, and allow you to empower us for a victorious life, a life that Jesus has won for us. Hear our prayers, O Lord. As we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.